Welcome to Life Continuing, conversations that explore consciousness, healing, and infinite existence. I'm Tanya Berg. Dr. Terry Daniel is a U.S.-based hospice and hospital-trained clinical chaplain, an end-of-life educator certified in death, dying, and bereavement by the Association of Death Education and Counseling, and in trauma support by the International Association of Trauma Professionals. She conducts workshops throughout the U.S. and teaches at the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley, California. Terry is also the founder of the Afterlife Conference, which is now in its 11th year, and is the author of four books on death, grief, and the afterlife. Her son, Danny, died at age 16 after a long struggle with a rare metabolic disorder. Danny began communicating with her after his death and his guidance, in this world and the next, changed everything. Starting out as a hospice volunteer, Terry spent the next several years pursuing academic degrees in religious studies and pastoral counseling. Over the years, Terry has helped hundreds of people learn to live, die, and grieve more consciously. Her work is acclaimed by hospice professionals, spiritual seekers, therapists, theologians, and academics worldwide. Take a listen to this enlightening episode where we discuss her amazing communication with her son and the ways in which near-death experiences can be influenced by cultural and religious beliefs. Welcome, Terry. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. Looking forward to it. I have so many questions and I first found you on Bob Olson when I was doing some research on the afterlife and metaphysics for my own experiences. And I just, I was so impressed with your knowledge, your education, and then of course your own personal experience with the metaphysical. So I read your book, A Swan in Heaven, beautiful, beautiful story. And I just wanted to maybe ask you to touch base a bit uh, to summarize that story, because those are the events that led you on the path that you're at today. Right. Okay. So my son, when he was 10 years old, and that would have been in the year 2000, was diagnosed with a rare metabolic disorder and given five to 10 years to live. And it was a progressively degenerative disease where he would go from being perfectly normal to ultimately needing total care in a wheelchair, can't walk, can't talk, wearing diapers, um, muscle contractures, eventually losing the ability to swallow, and eventually he dies. So being already a metaphysically minded person when we got this diagnosis, aside from the sadness and the grief and all the expected things, I also had a different response, which was, oh, this is interesting. I wonder what this means metaphysically. Like, why did we have this agreement to come here to earth and do this particular little dance. And just because I'm the mom and he's the kid this time around doesn't mean that I know what's happening any better than he does. So I really just kind of tried to let his soul um, lead the way. I mean, he, you know, 10, 11 years old, he isn't able to say, no, I don't want a bone marrow transplant. I mean, not like that. But I just kind of tried to listen to the whole thing on a soul level. So I was working with a phenomenal channeler at the time, Rebecca Covington is her name, and she was bringing me these amazing messages. Um, and she was saying, you know, after he dies, you're going to still have a relationship with him and you're going to do amazing work together. And so then he, when he died, 
30 minutes after he died, I was lying in bed holding his body. And I was saying to him, where are you right now? Where are you? You're not in this body. I can tell that, but can you show me where you are? And bam, I got this amazing vision of him standing up in a little in the at the edge of the ocean kicking the water around and laughing and and that's how it all began and it was so clear and i had this conversation with him where he said oh yeah this is going to happen all the time now i'm where i am you are where you are this is what we were supposed to do so now that i'm here and you're there we have work to do we got books to write people to teach stuff to do so let's get going and that's how it started. So that's basically where the f- first book starts. And then it goes through just the messages that he gave me and the scenes that he showed me of the afterlife. And then uh, there have been three books since then. That's an incredible story. What was your first impression when you did get those visual impressions from him? I was not surprised because I was had been prepared to expect that. And mostly it was just extreme joy. And I really, and it really helped because I didn't go through that deep, deep, traumatic, acute grief that you might expect. I mean, I, I did have that, but it was balanced by this. And so I lived near a beach at the time. And in those first few weeks, several weeks, I would go to the beach where I would always go running every day. And there was never anybody on the beach because I'd go at like five in the morning and I would take a stick and I'd write like big messages in the sand, you know, and and the big message I always wrote was thank you, Danny. So that it would just shine out to the universe, you know, and, and then I'd sit on the beach and he would just talk to me like he was sitting right next to me. And so then I started carrying a little tape recorder with me because I could feel when it was him talking and not me. It just felt different. And I would just pick up my tape recorder and just blah, 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 blah. And I was channeling him and all of that. Then I'd go home to my computer. I would transcribe it from the tape to a Word document. And that's how the first first two books really came about. Now, after some time passed, probably in the third or fourth year after he died, the messages stopped coming like that. They still came, but they weren't as constant. And I could feel him going away a little bit. And so I talked at this point, I had already started the afterlife conference. And I knew a lot of really good mediums, like, you know, um, Suzanne Northrup, you know, and I would ask her, I'd say, what happened? And she'd say, well, relationships change across dimensions, just like they do in life. So your marriage with your husband is not the same as it was 10 years ago. Your communication isn't the same. The sex isn't the same. Nothing's the same. And relationships change no matter what dimension you're in. So he's moving on with his business and I'm doing mine, but we're still connected. We still have a relationship and I still can sort of call on him and feel his presence. Sometimes when I'm just not paying any attention, boom, I feel him there and he's just kind of laughing or he's just kind of sending a message that says, you know, I'm watching you. I'm with you. We're doing what we came here to do. It's all good. Like a reassurance. Like a reassurance and just kind of like, I'm still here. I mean, and so this, I also had this explained to me, like if you're a teacher of say a second grade class of kids and you're teaching them math or spelling or something, you don't hover over their shoulder, breathing down their neck, 
watching them do the math problems. You show, you give them the tools and then you go walk away and you help the other kids. Then you come back to that kid and you help them. And that's kind of what our loved ones do with us on the other side. They're not just on us all the time. They're helping us like, you know, the second grade math teacher. That makes a lot of sense. Why wouldn't it be uh, any different, right? Right, because we're still here in this dimension. We still have to live our lives. We can't, you know, be dependent on a connection with them for everything. But it does, you do go through a thing when you start to feel that connection. It's not disappearing. It's just changing. You know, I mean, anyone who's ever been in a long-term relationship knows the difference between infatuation and long-term committed love. Sure. It's kind of like that. Well, that's a great analogy. So because of these, uh, this connection and the books that have come from it, you then went to school a little later in life <laughs> to educate yourself in, and then started the conference and it progressed from there. So tell me a little bit more about that and how that came to be. Yeah. So um, right after Danny died, I became a hospice volunteer because the experience of his death, you know, he's the first person I ever saw die. And, you know, being with him, I mean, I could feel his soul, you know, the whole thing. And it was like, this is so amazing. I want to be around this more. I want to be with people when they're dying because I could, I could tell that you could feel it and you can sort of travel with them. So I became a hospice volunteer and very quickly realized that the patients and their families had deep spiritual questions and issues about death and afterlife and religion. And I was obviously really into that stuff, but as a volunteer, you're not allowed to talk to them about that um, because it's very sensitive and only chaplains are really trained to have those kinds of conversations in ways where you're not leading them to think a certain thing or not think a certain thing. And so they, volunteers are just not allowed to do that for good reason. I completely support sure. that. Mm -hmm. So, well, but I wanted to do that. So at this point, it was now 2008 and um, the economic collapse was happening. Um, and a, a young friend of mine who was very young, college age, said, why don't you go to college? You can get student loans. It'll like help pay your living expenses. I thought, wow, maybe I should do that. Um, I wonder what I'd be interested in studying. So I started looking around at the schools near me and uh, saw this program in religious studies that was progressive and open-minded and pluralistic. And I just fell in love with it. And it was in Portland, which was three hours from where I lived. And I signed up. I was 56 years old and an undergrad starting college for the first time. So I did that. For, uh, I got my bachelor's in religious studies and also did part of that program training as a spiritual care provider at some hospices. So I got some inpatient hospice experience. And also toward the end of that time, I went and started chaplain training, uh, which is called CPE, clinical pastoral education. And I was just hooked on this education thing. So I kept going. And then I got a master's in pastoral care, which is what it's called, what chaplains do. And um, really liked doing chaplain work, but there were things I didn't like about it. You have to be very much an active listener, a better listener than a talker. And I'm a better talker than a listener. And so I realized that I want to teach. So doing what I'm doing right now, this is what I do best. And so um, 
I said, okay, you know what? Maybe I could teach in colleges about death and dying and bereavement and end of life care, but you need a doctorate to teach at most colleges. So back to school I went and got a doctorate at 66. So it was a 10 year journey, $150,000 in student loans. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> yeah, which, you know, and this is not a high paying career. So that's never going to get even slightly paid. Um, but here I am. So now I teach at uh, two seminaries, also very progressive. My students, I teach a class in the chaplaincy program at the Graduate Theological Union on spirituality and bereavement and spiritual care. And my students, they're all master's level and above. And my students are like Buddhist monks, Catholic priests, pagan practitioners, shamans. I mean, and they're not just the wannabes like you see everywhere, right? These are people with master's degrees, PhDs, you know, who like live in monasteries and are the real thing. And here they are in my class allowing me to teach them, which is such an honor. I love them so much. So I'm very grateful for that. I love that. That That's a really diverse classroom you have and so much learning really back and forth because their experiences are pretty rich as well. Well, uh, yeah, I'm learning. And this is a great segue into what we're going to talk about, about multicultural beliefs. So in one of my classes, I have three Koreans. They are all Catholic priests. They live in Korea. They log into our Zoom class at 2.30 a.m. their time. And they all live, they're Jesuit priests, and they all live in like a monastery collective house together. I have a rabbi. I have a Buddhist monk who lives also in a monastery. Uh, and, oh, and I have a Baptist preacher from the South, a couple of those. Um, and it's just fascinating. But the great thing about these people is they're not fundamentalists. They're not evangelicals. They are thinkers because they have education. This is why I'm like such a big fan of education. So I can have a rational conversation with a Jesuit monk about the afterlife. You know, they don't believe in, in the old original church of eternal punishment. They're, they're, they've studied history and comparative scripture and other things. They know how the Bible was organized and how the church was formed. And if you know that stuff, you can't believe in the other stuff. Right. Anymore. Yeah, that makes sense. Fear and guilt come to mind when you talk about organized religion. And well, yeah. And, and so what organized religion means when we talk about it in the West is that literally a bunch of people, men, got together in over a 200-year period where they had these four councils. You've heard of the Council of Nicaea, but there were also three other ones, same thing, kind of like convening the House of Representatives or something. And they sit down and they make up the new rules for that decade or century or whatever for the church that they organize. And it all it has nothing to do with Jesus, nothing at all. And, you know, so and we can talk about Jesus if you want, but um, the organ organized religion is the what we call the institutional church or the organized church, where these bishops just got together and built a corporation with bylaws and rules and hierarchies 
And they constantly added to the um, uh, catechism, the rules, and the things you're supposed to follow. They edited the scriptures and put together the biblical canon, the Bible that most people know, was all cut and pasted by these guys. You know, and they didn't, the original writings weren't found until 1948. Now, this stuff happened in the first 200 years starting from zero, if zero starts with Jesus, right? Right. Okay, but 1948, which is like six years before I was born, um, that's when they found the hid the old hidden books that the church threw out. And that's why they were hidden, because the monks, the Essenes, who had these books, knew that the church was out to get them and to write its own story. So they hid them in jars, in clay jars, in caves. That's where the um, Dead Sea Scrolls were also found. So that's just in the last 60-something years. Right. 70. Yeah, and I mean, learning this truth and understanding the bigger picture and really preserving the true spirituality of all belief systems and religions, that's the bottom line. I mean, that's what I hope everybody is looking for or will come to see in time. Well, you know, it's really interesting because any clergy person with an education and the, the academic degree that most clergy people get is called a Master's of Divinity. And if you have a Master's of Divinity from Princeton or Harvard or UCLA or any, you know, regular secular school, you got a really good education. And you know all this stuff that I just said. They all know this but they don't share it with the people in the pews. Now, on the other side of that, if you got an education at like Brigham Young University or Bob Jones, you know, like a Bible college, like Pat Robertson's university, right. where it's completely evangelical, you, you don't know this stuff. They don't even teach this stuff or they manipulate it differently. But most educated clergy know everything that I'm saying right now and more. And um, yet they don't tell it to the, the people that they serve because it will shake up their faith. And, and that's exactly what you want to do. Yes, definitely. Definitely. But you, want, you know, but that you want to keep them coming back to your church and putting money in that tithing bowl every Sunday. So uh, <laughs> you don't want to scare them away. Yeah. Then it gets political. And it is it always was political. Always was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So then going back to the diversity of your students, when it comes to near-death experiences, I know you have some interesting research to share about cultural belief systems. Yeah, well, um, I can't take credit for that research. I will give you the names of uh, two people who can. One of them is Gregory Shushan, S-H-U-S-H-A-N. He is a researcher, I'm not sure... He's in New Mexico, but I think he did most of his research in London. I'm not sure. Fabulous uh, guy. You can Google him. He's given IN's talks. You can find his videos. And that's his thing, is he studies the different accounts of NDEs in different cultures. So somebody in you know, sub-Saharan Africa has a different experience than someone in Holland, than someone in New York. And... Um, his conclusion, and and many, and also Mark Mirabello is another one who does this. Um, the conclusion is that it's culturally subjective. Now, if we go way back to 1970, to Melvin Morse's book, 
closer to the light. He was mm -hmm. a pediatrician um, who was contemporary of Raymond Moody's, and the two of them both did this research at the same time. But Melvin, as a pediatrician, uh, I think he worked in the emergency room. He resuscitated lots and lots and lots of kids who had died, and he brought them back. And they would tell him what they experienced they, in little child language, you know, like a five-year-old would say, I had a dream. I flew up to the sun and it hugged me. And then it told me to go back to mommy and daddy. So these kids were having near-death experiences, but they weren't going to heaven with pearly gates and halos and things. But some of them were, depending on their religious orientation. So little five-year-olds who'd been told that or told about Jesus would go and see Jesus. Um, some of them would see their grandparents because the only thing they were ever told about other worlds is that's where grandma is, she's in heaven. So they would go and they would see grandma. So from a child's view, it's very pure. You know, it's it kind of shows you that they're not making this up. You know, now there hasn't been any research that I know of of children in Afghanistan or, you know, China having these experiences. But there are there is some research on um, adults um, that came out of India and basically finding the same thing, that if you have a religious orientation, that's what you're going to see when you're just in the threshold. Now, that doesn't mean that's what is in eternity forever, because when you're just having a near-death experience, you're just across the line, and then you get pulled back so you're not over there for very long. You're not oriented and indoctrinated and uh, assimilated into the afterlife. You're just got your foot in the water and then you're yanked back out. So you're still carrying with you everything that you have from this life. And that's going to ease you into it. So if you carry Jesus with you, of course you're going to see Jesus. Some of these children in Melvin's study saw Disney characters. <laughs> I never yeah, heard it's a, that. <laughs> it's a wonderful book. It's, I mean, it's from 1970. It's called Closer to the Light. It's a small little book. You should definitely read it. It's wonderful. Um, so um, let's see. It's, uh, so for example, like if we look at uh, Mark Mirabello's work, he talks about like, depending on the belief system of the culture. So the Zulu tribe in Africa mm -hmm. believes that we, they believe in reincarnation and we can come back as an animal but only the chief can come back as a lion. And so how did they get an idea like that? How did that idea get built into their legacy? Because somebody died and came back and reported to the tribe, I saw my cousins and my sister, and, and one was a deer and one was a rabbit, but the chief was the lion because of the chief, you know, the chief is the big, the big guy in the village. So of course he's going to be the strongest thing, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's based on what they experience in life. There's tons and tons of stories like this. Depending on what you believe is what you are going to experience in a near-death experience. So you were saying as well that you're not completely assimilated into the afterlife. I've heard this before where apparently to go to the real afterlife, you don't come back from that. So we always yeah. we always step on that threshold, on that borderline. So is that some kind of almost an astral level, if you will? Well, you know, a lot of teachers like Michael Newton talk about 
the interlife. I like to call it the interlife because it's between incarnations because I happen to believe in reincarnation. Mm -hmm. If it's the afterlife, then it means you just go there and you stay there because that's what happens after. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Right. But I like to think of it as inter. And yeah, it is, it is um, an astral plane. It is a place that we can visit through meditation and astral travel, uh, channeling, mediumship. It is a place from which uh, there can be communication. You know, I, I don't know the exact number, but I'm going to say that something like at least 90% of people on the planet believe in some sort of afterlife. So why don't they believe that the afterlife can communicate with us? Like, why stop it there? Why, you know, why say, yeah, it exists, but they can't talk to us and we can't talk to it. And that's because, you know, we're just, we're not very evolved yet. And we've got a long way to go before we can understand interdimensional communication. In your book, I know you had some meditations, the starlight meditation, uh, breathing in star, the colored stars. That one, I mean, that jumped out for me. Um, I really enjoyed it. And I practiced it actually while I was reading it. And um, it really, it it had an effect right away. Yeah. I really like that. Oh, it's, that's such a beautiful one. And that was totally given to me by my son. And um, I actually have that recorded. I can uh, send you a link to a recording of me reading that meditation. But I do that with hospice patients and hospital patients all the time. Um, If I'm just doing it for them to relax, if they're agitated, I just have them uh, imagine a starry sky full of millions of stars and breathing deeply. And then the stars start to become colorful. They're not just white, they're all colors. And they start swirling around. And as you breathe in, you're now breathing in stardust. And you let the stardust fill your body. And you breathe in that beautiful light of the universe, light of God, whatever language you want to use. And you let it fill you. And then when you exhale, you blow out all your fear and anxiety. So that's the real simple version of it. And it can also be used for uh, interdimensional communication, because at a deeper level in that meditation, you can call somebody in to visit you, a loved one on the other side, an angel, a guide, an ancestor, whoever you want to call, and they will appear surrounded by that swirling stardust and and give you a message. So uh, yeah, I use that meditation all the time. It is really beautiful. Yes, thank you for that. That's quite a gift. Oh, well, thank you for using it. That's a gift back to me. (laughs) There you go, an exchange. Tremendously, (laughs) yeah, that's really nice. Um, Something about NDEs I wanted to say is that um, the the near-death reports that we have in our archives, in our collection, in our uh, body of research, are almost all from Western... European experiences, in other words, Judeo-Christian white culture. And because we have that, we've developed this, what we call a typical NDE, right? Where you go through a tunnel and there's the light and then there's somebody loving you. Um, So much of this is coming just from our culture. And so one of the things that we look at when we look at people from different cultures is we compare their experience to that standard. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how we see, you know, how different they are. Um, and uh, the non-Western NDEs that we know of, are they vary in a lot of ways um, because certain elements were mi are missing, like there's no tunnel, there's no light. Um, re they have, for instance, in uh, uh, India, Africa, certain other parts of Asia, um, they see more religious figures than we do in America. And there is a study on that, which I'm looking at right now, um, but I don't really have uh, a summary to give you, but I can send you a link to the study uh, if you're interested in posting it in the show notes. Definitely. Yeah. And so another example, um, there was a famous uh, Christian NDE, a woman died, I have a link to this too if you want it, and uh, went to heaven, and Jesus told her, you have to go back to earth and convert as many people as possible to follow me. <laughs> that was the message she got, because that's the message she'd been hearing her whole life, right? Because she yeah. was an evangelical, and that was her, so, you know, like if, for me, I'm probably, if I had a near-death experience, I'm going to probably just hear myself talking. <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I'm, I'm one of the people that's putting out these messages. So everything that I think I know um, is what I'm going to see when I first get my foot in that doorway. I guess I'm looking at the NDE and then we have the interpretation of the experience. But then there's the other components, the after effects, and then the transformation of the individual thereafter. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, that's, that's the key, isn't it? Um, you know, and what you hear the vast majority of the time is it takes away people's fear of death. Mm -hmm. It takes away so much of their anxiety. And, you know, we have people who've had two or three or four NDEs who've been chronically ill all their lives and have been resuscitated a number of times. I think after that, you'd probably be really sick of being resuscitated. And just, and, and that is what people say, like, I didn't want to come back here. Mm -hmm. you know, it, it felt so good to be out of that body. And then when you're brought back into the body, um, you can only think, well, I guess I have to be here for a reason. I mean, first you think I'm here in this body again, you know, but after some time you go back into your life, you can't go back to who you were before that experience. So it, it's always going to change you. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what concerns me is that people have bad experiences too. And there mm -hmm. are a lot of those recorded and they go to so-called hellish realms. Right. But remember, we're carrying forward what we have imprinted on us from this lifetime. So if you have hellish experience, it's probably because you believe that you are a bad person and you're going to go to hell. So that's where you're going to go. So it's a reflection of ourselves. It's a reflection of what we've chosen to believe. Mm -hmm. All right. So as a hospital chaplain, I talked to so many people who were, you know, diagnosed with a terminal illness, given a period of time to live. And they say to me, they're Christians mostly, um, I was a really bad person. You know, I was a criminal, I was a meth dealer, I beat up my wife, whatever their thing is. And, you know, I'm a sinner, and now I'm dying, and I'm really scared that I'm going to go to hell. I mean, they believe that. So if they died the next day and were resuscitated, that's probably where they go. And let, you know, in their temporary visit to the other side. 
unless they did some work prior to that where they could clear out that belief somewhat. But it's pretty hard to get somebody in their 80s to change their theology on their deathbed. Yep, that's a tall order. (laughs) I guess that's why Buddhists talk about non-attachment and the importance Mm -hmm. of trying to let go. Mm -hmm. Right? Yeah, well, one of the biggest things we all need to do with non-attachment is, you know, non-attachment means don't be in love with your, it doesn't mean don't love your dog. Right. And your husband and your house and your favorite boots. Yeah. You know, I mean, it does kind of mean that because we all of those things are fleeting. And, you know, we don't know that the husband's going to stick around or the dog's not going to die or the boots aren't going to get lost, you know. Mm-hmm. So we do have to be non attached. We have to always be willing to let things just move through us instead mm-hmm. of stick to us, right? But the real important thing about non attachment is to, to be able to let go of ideas. Yes. That's the biggest thing of beliefs and assumptions. That's why I don't even like to use the word belief. I just Mm -hmm. say I resonate with the idea of reincarnation. Mm, I like that. You know, but that could change. Yes. And the other thing that I've learned after 10 years in theology school is how to say, I don't know. So if somebody comes back to me and says, do we reincarnate? I would say, I don't know. I have no idea. I think we do. It makes sense to me that we do, but I can't tell you. I don't have, I can't give you the answer to that. It resonates with you, but that's where it ends. (laughs) But if somebody said to me, is there a hell and eternal punishment? I would say, absolutely not. Right. (laughs) Because that I do know. So what's the difference? How do I know one thing and not the other? Because one thing makes sense and the other doesn't. One thing is supportive of consciousness and love and life, and the other isn't. I'm not sure. I've never asked myself that question before. <laughs> I'll have to think about that Something one. Something to ponder, yes. Um, I know a friend who's a hospice chaplain who had a patient who was actively dying, literally taking his last breaths. And this man had been talking for many, many days prior to that about being afraid of hell. And as chaplains, we're not supposed to talk them out of their beliefs at all. We're just supposed to help them work with their beliefs. But this chaplain was so so upset and bothered by this man's anguish that when the man was dying, way past the point where he could talk or be responsive, he just whispered in the guy's ear, there is no hell. You're not going there. It doesn't exist. You are going to absolute love and absolute peace which he could have been fired for. Yeah, but. But nobody knew. (laughs) That's for the higher good. It was a good intention. Totally. I mean, yeah. And so then you have religion coming up with all these practices. Like, so if this guy was Catholic, this patient, we'll call him patient X, (laughs) um, he, he would have had the priest come and give him last rites, you know, or what they now call sacrament of the sick. They don't call it last rites anymore. And which is like giving him a certain blessing. They might even give him communion um, so that he would be cleared for heaven. So that particular ritual and a lot of Catholics really freak out if they don't have that because that particular ritual is supposed to get you out of hell free. And so if the priest doesn't come and do that, um, you're probably going to hell, according to Orthodox Catholic beliefs, which nobody really believes anymore. It's not even the church. 
Yeah, it sounds a bit stressful. Yeah, a bit. <laughs> I just, I'm just taking that in because, uh, you know, a lot, we don't have experience, especially in, in North American and, and Western societies, we hide death. We don't want to see it. We don't want to talk about it. And I think we forget the dying patient at the time of death. So it's more about our grief and um, our wanting to push it away, even though we want to be there for the last breath. So I feel like there's a bit of a challenge, a, um, a conflict internally with death because we just don't want to see it. Yeah. And it, because death was medicalized after, you know, it before, well, actually, it, this is very interesting. I mean, way back uh, in Europe, you know, people had farms, you buried your dead on your farm, you laid the dead person out on the kitchen table and washed them and dressed them and all the people came and it was just part of life. Nobody thought anything about it. And then um, when the church got really, when churches got really popular in cities and cities started to get built, they started to bury people in the churchyard because the idea of being buried in the churchyard is that was like sanctified holy ground. So instead of burying someone on your farm, you would prefer to have them buried at the church because it's holier there. And um, interestingly, what happened in a lot of these churchyards is they got filled up pretty fast. And so they would, they would literally, like five years later, dig up the bones of the person who was buried five years ago, put them in another place called an ossuary, and then put a new person in that same grave. Very, very common practice. I forgot why I'm telling you this. Um, oh, hiding from death. Yeah, so um, so then, so the church took over the management of death at that time. And then um, fast forward to like the industrial revolution, people aren't on farms anymore. People live in cities, they have jobs, they're not self-sufficient, they don't have land. Um, death goes to the hospital, death goes to the doctor, still with the church. But fast forward to today, it's 100% medicalized. Mm -hmm. you, you know, you die in a hospital or in an ambulance or in a nursing home, you know, hardly anybody gets to die at home. More and more that's happening though. Um, so yeah, death is completely kept away from us. Yes. And, and going back to, you know, anxiety and neurosis, um, the fear of death is at the root of all anxiety. Yes, it is. Right? <laughs> yeah. The fear that your ego is going to disappear. Yeah. I will no longer be here. Mm -hmm. Or you cannot imagine a universe without you in it. Right. It just wouldn't be the universe without you. It just wouldn't be. <laughs> Come on. Right. And it's like so, that's so not humane. <laughs> so not universally real. Right. You know? so it's disconnected. It's disconnected. Thank you. Exactly. Because the universe uh, will go on without you. Actually, you will not not be there. You'll right. still be in it. You'll just be in it somewhere else in a different form. Yes. I like that idea. Yeah. It's not possible for the universe to exist without you. Right. Because where like are you going to go? <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> so then this brings me then to the Afterlife Awareness Conference, the original conference that mm -hmm. you did start in 2010. Uh, yeah, I had the word original inserted into the logo in 2012, because right after we started that conference, all kinds of other people started having afterlife conferences. And I had trademarked that name. 
And I was hearing from people all the time saying, oh, I went to your conference in Arizona. And it's like, no, that's not us. Oh, I went to your conference when so-and-so was speaking. No, that wasn't us. You know, so I, you know, I had to be careful about uh, my brand identity because there were things going on in these other conferences that my conference would not do. And, you know, they would cover topics and things that we would not cover. And I didn't want to be associated. I, you know, I have, yeah. I try to keep it at a certain academic standard. Right. Yes. And I noticed that um, in the, in the description, you do ask for experiential presentations. Mm -hmm. Well, experiential presentations only just for the workshops, because mm -hmm. we have three hour workshops and you can't just sit and listen to somebody talk for three hours. So sure. you have to do things. And so I look for things where you're really getting instruction and ideally the presenter can offer continuing education credits, mm -hmm. which now I can offer. So oh. um, you'll see for this year's 2021 conference, which has to be online because of COVID, yes. um, you know, certain presenters who qualify for the continuing education credits uh, are offered. So that way we get social workers, psychologists, nurses, doctors, people who need CE credits to come to the conference. So that is, you know, the more academic I became over the last several years, the more academic the conference became. Because I really wanted it to be a little more mainstream because I was becoming more mainstream. So now I have all this, these degrees and I work in clinics and universities. And that's where I want this information to go. I don't want to talk to a bunch of, you know, people who are already immersed in the mystical world because they already are there. I want to, you know, teach it to people who haven't been exposed to it. I want nurses and doctors to learn about the afterlife because they're the ones that are sitting there watching people die. Mm -hmm. And helping people die, nurses more than doctors. Um, so that's why I've, you know, kind of put the conference in that format and found amazing people like uh, Dr. Christopher Kerr from Hospice of Buffalo, who just did amazing research on the deathbed dreams and visions of the dying. Um, Ken Doka, who's the senior consultant for the Hospice Foundation of America, works with me all the time on podcasts and things that we're doing and is speaking at the conference this year. Uh, also on uh, mystical experiences of the dying. So so that little gap is getting bridged a little bit. And normalize. We need to normalize the afterlife to everyone so that everybody understands at least a little bit about it. Normalize is the perfect word for it. That's exactly right. Yeah, we do want to normal. We've got a long way to go. Sure. <laughs> Lots of work. And, and it's, you know, because um, clinicians don't get get training in this. Mm -hmm. And um, I was teaching a class at a nursing school once, and this, this was their, it was a bachelor's of science program. So they were in their fourth year, they were about to graduate, all these nursing students. And I did a two-hour presentation on death and dying, on the process of death and how to be with someone when they're dying. And the nurses told me that was the first lecture they had ever had on death in four years of nursing school. Unbelievable. So not only do they not get education on the afterlife and the spiritual stuff, but they actually don't get education on death. And if you ask any medical doctor of any age, if they could be 85 years old, retired, or they could just be a brand new young intern, did they have any classes on death and dying? Most of them will tell you no. It's just not even part of the medical school curriculum. But 
it is starting to very gradually come into those schools. Well, that's a start. It has to start somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. And hopefully all the work we're all doing is helping that to happen. Bits and pieces from every angle. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so where can we find information about the conference? What website? Afterlifeconference.com. Mm-hmm. And you can also find my grief workshops at spiritualityandgrief.com. And I also have a podcast with my friend, Dr. Karen Wyatt, called AskDrDeath.com. And that's important to note that doctor is spelled out. It's not D-R, because D-R, Dr. Death, is Jack Kevorkian. Oh. (laughs) Right. So we are (laughs) D-O-C-T-O-R. Ask Dr. Death. It's a great podcast. I took a listen to a couple of the episodes. Yes. Really, uh, you really talk about it all and lay it all out. I love it. Yeah. Very candid. Thank you. Thank you. We love it. <laughs> Wonderful. Terry, thank you so much for speaking with me today. This is a, a great asset to the show. You have a wealth of knowledge and your story's amazing. And I wish you all the best with the conference. I need to get my ticket is what I need to do today. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. And, you know, we have an early bird price that ends March 31st. So oh, perfect. I want to do it before that. Definitely. Thanks again, Terry. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. I really appreciate this. Okay. Take care. Bye-bye, my friend. Thanks for listening to Life Continuing. A special thanks to Terry Daniel. For more on Terry and to register for the Afterlife Conference, please visit danieldirect.net. The advisor to the show is Amanda Capito. The music for this podcast was composed by Richard Farron. I'm your host, Tanya Berg. Make sure to subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcasts and follow on Instagram at Life Continuing Podcast. And be sure to join me next time where we'll continue this conversation about life continuing.